0: Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. Before we get started today, I want to remind everyone that it is election day here in Southeast Michigan. Polls are open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. You can see what's on your ballot and all the other information you might need to cast a ballot by going to Michigan.gov. Slash /vote that is the secretary of state's site that has all of the information you need to know where you're supposed to vote and things like that. You can also find all kinds of great information about the choices that you're going to find on your ballot here in Southeast Michigan. We at WDET have been covering it pretty closely uh, all fall and you can find all of that coverage at wdet.org/vote. All right, we're going to get started here with a really interesting subject today. If you've been paying any attention to politics in the last half decade, you have probably heard a lot about billionaires. You might also know the ways that very rich people and corporations legally hide their money in tax havens, they create shell companies overseas, and they hire expensive lawyers to avoid paying taxes. A recent ProPublica investigation revealed that the richest 25 billionaires here in our country paid a true federal tax rate of just 3.4% between 2014 and 2018, despite their surging net worth. A growing course of progressive representatives, including Senators Bernie Sanders, Ron Wyden, Elizabeth Warren, and Michigan Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, have been wanting to level the playing field by redistributing some of that money. That's all detailed, their plan for that, in a new bill meant to tax 700 of these billionaires. But other wealthy people that get a little less attention, some argue, are an even bigger problem. While billionaire wealth soared by 70% during the pandemic, the top 9.9% still take home most of the country's wealth. A lot of these people exist in the highest echelons of society and influence much of the everyday behavior, culture, and attitudes of those who are not part of that class. There's a new book that explores all of these dynamics and more. It's called The 9.9%, The New Aristocracy That Is Entrenching Inequality and Warping Our Culture. And that is where we begin the conversation today with that book and its author Matthew Stewart who is a philosopher and historian Matthew welcome to Detroit today
1: Well Stephen thank you so much for inviting me here I'm glad to be here
0: So let's start with the term that you coin here, the 9.9%. Now, I think everybody by now is used to the idea, at least, of the 1%. That's a term that gets used pretty frequently in our discussions about wealth and wealth inequality. But define this 9.9% for us and tell us who in our lives, for instance, we might think of Who would belong to this group of Americans?
1: Sure. So um, part of the point is um, personal or sociological, but part of it's mathematical. So um, if you don't mind, I'll I'll, I'll try to make the mathematical point in the way that it works uh, in in the morning. (laughs) Um, So uh, I think we all know that economic inequality uh, has increased over the past 50 years. Uh, most people are also probably aware that it decreased by the same amount in the preceding 50 years. So we're back where we were were in 1928 by any number of measures uh, of extreme concentration of wealth. Um, And the usual story has been that it's the the people at the top, the the 1% are getting it. Um, But when you look at the numbers, it's a more complicated story. The first point is that all of the relative increase in concentration of wealth has happened in the top 0.1 percent so not the top one percent you should be aiming the fire at the 0.1 percent and perhaps even above that 0.01 percent mm-hmm. the billionaires mm-hmm. and so on um, but it turns out that not everybody down below lost relative share only and i should put that only in scare quotes the bottom 90 percent did almost everybody, but not quite. In between the 90 percent of the bottom and the top 0.1 percent of this group, which I call, with um, a kind of excessive mathematical precision, the 9.9 percent that has actually kept even. So it's it's essentially held on to its share of the wealth, even as the the um, inequality picture has gone from you know, high to low and back up to high again. Um, so that's the that's the mathematical point, and the and the spectrum. If you use wealth as your indicator, which I do, um, you know entry into that group would require a, a bit over a million dollars in net worth, about 1.2 million in 2016, um, and then about 20 million will kick you out at the top end and bring you into the top 0.1 percent. Um, so that's that's the math, um, but there's I think a lot more to the story um, than that because it's it's kind of about the way the group thinks about itself. And I guess I'll make one last point about the math. Mm-hmm. And that's this, what what matters in American society in terms of economics um, isn't just this gap between the top 0.1% and everybody else. What matters for most people is the gap between the 90%, where most people are, and the 9.9%, which is a kind of reasonable definition of what it means to succeed. It's kind of a measure how high the hill is in the American economy. And um, that hill, if you measured it in 1970, I would give it a number of something like 10. That is to say, you'd have to increase your wealth by about 10 times to go from the middle of the pack up to the middle of that top decile, middle of the 9.9%. Well, that hill is now more than two and a half times as high. Hmm. Basically, you'd increase your wealth by 24 times. So that's the key economic driver of an awful lot of stuff that's happening in, in our lives. And that's, my, that's the general point, of course, I write a whole book about. It.
0: Right. Um, so, and again, I want to come back to this point. Who are these people in our lives? Uh, if we want to think of someone in the 9.9 percent, is this someone who lives in our neighborhoods, for instance, and, and maybe lives in a nicer part of the neighborhood? Is this someone that we may work with uh, or work for? Uh, who, who belongs to this class of, of Americans?
1: Right. So, you know, if, if we just look at the wealth numbers, I think you, you can make a number of generalizations. I mean, The first generalization, of course, is that there's not one single type, a huge number of people. But they're dominated by um, professional and managerial types. Um, within, the, um, within the managerial um, types, there, there's a, a heavy skew towards um, finance and financial-related things, heavy skew towards real estate and real estate related um, investments. There's also a very strong presence of the medical community. We have the highest paid doctors in the, um, well, in the history of the universe, um, also the highest paid dentists. Um, there's also a, a fair number of small business owners uh, in the mix. And then there's also a generational gap. Uh, so a significant number are older, retired people who are essentially sitting on significant gains in um, real estate, and in IRAs and things like that. So it's, it's a complicated mix. You definitely know many people who are in the group in a technical sense. But for me, the interesting thing is more uh, the, the social aspect of it, the people in the group who essentially define what it means to succeed in American life. And, and, and it's, it's those people that are or that kind of culture, really, not a group of people, but a sort of culture, that I think is worth paying attention to um, because it's a culture that has some good things that, that I think came out of a post-war American world that you know, had, had some had some real positive aspects, but under the pressure of rising inequality, it has changed. It's become much more stratified than people are willing to acknowledge, and, it, and it's increasingly tending to lock people in place. I mean, to some degree, what's happening is that, that people... In this 9.9%, have figured out that uh, they need to kind of slam the door behind them in a certain way. Um, and that, uh, while it protects them to some degree, it also has the effect of continuing this big transfer of wealth that's happening from the bottom night uh, up to the top 0.1%. Yeah. I'm um, but there are people that we know. Yeah, go ahead. Well, um, I, I, I was going to say also that uh, some of it is comes through in attitude. So I I, I tend to think that uh, people who have um, made it into the 9.9% feel they're part of it, you know, the, the, there are certain um, thoughts that they have and certain thoughts that they don't have. I mean, they, they think of higher education as um, an unmitigated good, and they also take for granted if they have children that they'll simply go to the best um, school that they can get into. That's... You know, part of the the dream. That's what works in our society. Um, but of course, there there are many people for whom that's just a, an impossible dream. It doesn't make sense. I mean, the you know the economics just don't work out for a large number of, of people. I would say also that uh, housing and where people live is, is a real uh, defining attribute of this group. I um, mean, you know, we're talking about people who have. Really made quite a bit of money or at least accumulated a fair amount of paper wealth through their homes, and they've done that by choosing the right neighborhoods and then whether directly or indirectly participating in the various mechanisms that lock in the the value of their properties, make it harder for other people to move in and you know create a sort of an affordability crisis uh, housing affordability on the other side right so um you know it's it's people who basically their house as a crucial part of their identity, uh, but who perhaps aren't always willing to acknowledge the the advantage that that can can often um, give them. Um, yeah. But uh, so there, there are a variety of things that I think uh, identify the group, um, and I, I guess I, I just would like people to just think a little more about where you know, where this uh, where the advantages are coming from. Um, I suppose a, a final point I'll make is that the, a key defining feature of the group is its Absolute belief in in merit, right? The idea that everybody gets what they deserve and yes. just you know, work hard and have a certain amount of talent, you know, you'll, you'll get your returns will simply match that. And I think that's a great belief from a self help perspective. I think it's good to have a society that puts emphasis on that, but it's also kind of um, a self serving delusion um, in, in, in many cases and it becomes so in conditions like we have today where you have extreme
0: inequality. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with uh, Matthew Stewart. He's a philosopher and historian and author of the new book, The 9.9%, the new aristocracy that is entrenching inequality and warping our culture. Uh, we're talking about uh, wealth inequality and what drives it, what defines it in our culture, and what makes it so hard to confront and to mitigate Uh, By the numbers, we are back pretty much to a state of inequality, of gaps between rich and poor in this country that we had uh, pre-Depression, the idea of that extreme extreme poverty and extreme wealth uh, that inspired lots of changes to government and economy to make that less so. Uh, How did we get back to this place where... There is such a large gap and where bridging the gap is such an insurmountable task. We want to hear from you as well during the conversation. What do you think of the inequality that we are currently living with? Who and what do you think are the biggest drivers of that economic inequality? Uh, What do you think, if anything, should be done to reduce that inequality? And uh, what do you think of the idea of government uh, being involved with the idea of mitigating some of that uh, some of that economic gap. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And uh, we'll work into the conversation. Also, give us a sense, uh, give us a call and give us a sense of what you think of some of the proposals that have come out of Congress, including from our own uh, representative Rashida Tlaib here in southeast Michigan uh, to reinstitute uh, pretty regressive taxes against uh, people at the very top of uh, the economic scale. Uh, Is that a way to redistribute wealth or to make the the playing field a little more level. Again, 577 1019 is the number here uh on the phones. Um you can also go to the to social media of course and put uh, comments there and we'll work into the conversations. Matthew, before we get to to callers, I do want to talk about uh some specific things from your book and 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 I want to start with the structure, the chapter structure, which is very Interesting. Uh, The first chapter is who we are. The second chapter is why we have such amazing children. The third is why we get along so well with the other sexes. Uh, Fourth is why we are so highly educated. And five is why our neighborhoods are the best. And it goes on uh, from there. I love I love that that narrative tool that you're using there, um, but but it seems like what you're what you're uh, constructing there is a view from inside this class of people and uh, trying to reflect the way they think of themselves, which is a really important part of the point that I think you're trying to make overall in the book. Yeah, th-
1: th- thanks for pointing that out. Um, I think there there are two things I'd really like to communicate. One is that inequality is not just about money. Um, Inequality, the money inequality follows from power, and its consequences extend across all of our lives. I mean, sometimes I hear people say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter if that person's rich and I'm not, because, you you know, I can make do and so on. But what People, I would like people to understand is that when you have a society with high economic inequality, it also means a society with high power inequality, and it also means a society in which people marry differently, in which they raise kids. Everybody raises kids differently than in a society that's more equal, uh, in which neighborhoods and space get organized in radically different ways, in which people change the way they think about education, and also they change the actual value of education, um, it affects our health. It affects our, our health, not just because not having money makes you unhealthy, but the, the condition of inequality itself can lead to very strange and unhealthy dynamics uh, for our health. It also affects our whole political discourse, what we consider to be reasonable and what works in society. So that's the first general point. If economic inequality is not just about mo- the money. Um, And the second point is, to what you were saying, I think very um, astutely about the the internal perspective, part of the way in which we contribute to economic inequality is not by, by, uh, as as members of the 9.9% of people who aspire to join it, it's not by hoarding the money necessarily, it's by passing along or modeling certain values. We've kind of bought into a system of values that, at the end of the day, don't actually serve us that much, They, they kind of serve... The the people at the very top they basically are a way of keeping lots of people down, giving them a false promise and a false hope of success, and using that as a device for, for making the rich richer and reproducing the whole system. So, I guess those are the two points I hope to make in the in the structure of the book. But um, I look forward to hearing from callers. I usually get um, a, a nice mix of uh, <laughs> friendly and hostile, so uh, I, I look forward to it.
0: Yeah. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back. We're going to continue this conversation with Matthew Stewart, and we will get to your calls and your social media comments. Tom and Taylor, Wardell, and Detroit, uh, you'll be up first. If you want to join them, 313 577 1119 is the number here uh, on the phones. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDETM, Stephen Henderson, and as always, Thanks for tuning in. My guest is Matthew Stewart. He's a philosopher and a historian. He's got a new book called The 9.9%, The New Aristocracy That Is Entrenching Inequality and Warping Our Culture. Uh, That phrase, the 9.9%, is a little different than the phrase that you might be used to when we talk about wealth inequality in America. We are all, I think, pretty familiar with the idea of the 1% and what we think about that 1% uh, that ultra wealthy class of americans and the ways they shield themselves from taxes and other things that might uh, more evenly spread wealth in our uh, in our culture and in our society uh, matthew's book suggests that there is a much broader set of americans who are contributing to that inequality and defending that inequality uh, from good-natured and well-meaning efforts to make things fairer and easier for people to move up the economic scale. Uh, We want to hear from you during this hour as well. Tell us what you think about the wealth inequality that we live with. Do you think it is just uh, a manifestation of the differences in in hard work versus people who maybe don't want to work as hard? Or do you think that there are inequalities baked into the system that make it impossible for people at the bottom to reach even the middle, let alone the top? Uh, and if you think that's true, what do you think we ought to change? How ought we alter uh, government, how ought we alter taxes and other things in our society to make sure that uh, – Opportunity is distributed a little more fairly. Uh, As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Big Neo on Twitter says a key factor in bridging the wealth gap is to get the, quote, regular folks to stop defending the 1%. I've seen way too many people take a position that they are part of the elite when they are not LG, LBJ is credited for starting that mentality. Uh, interesting comment there, Big Neil. let's go to Tom in Taylor. Tom, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Um, when I look at inequality in this world, or in, especially in America, it really is a matter of tax policy, and it really begins in 1980. The end, Reagan's assault on unions really began to decimate the middle class. Along with that, we, we came up with some really interesting ways to hide taxes through generational wealth. And that's where I, I believe the real issue lays, is, is that from generation to generation, the greater the your estate, and especially the ones over $100 million, they pay less than 2% in estate taxes. That's got to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, what's happening is that that generational wealth has passed from the next, one generation to the next and it, it was decimated uh, core areas of this country, especially within the urban centers where you see wealth uh, of, of the, I think it was the Boston um, Boston Consulting along with, uh, I, I believe it was BU, came up with a, um, a study where people within the Boston area, white people within the Boston area, have on average $250,000 in, in assets, whereas... Mm-hmm. African Americans in the same community, along with other minorities, have a negative nine dollar assets yeah. to transfer from one generation to the next. Yeah, that's the problem.
0: The Tom, um, I really appreciate the call and the and the thoughts there. I mean, I think that's a really great example of what we're talking about. Uh, Matthew, I I, I want to get you to talk about taxes and. Uh, the, the role they play in the current problem and some of the solutions that have been put out there, including this bill in Congress that would tax 700 billionaires really differently than they are right now. Uh, is tax policy, I guess, one of the tools, one of the ways that we can leverage a significant change here?
1: Uh, yes, without doubt. And um, if I may, I'll simply endorse um, what Tom said. Uh, I don't dispute anything he said. Um, I will say that I'm asking a slightly different question, but it's premised on the same set of facts. So historically, two things to remember very clearly. One is that um, taxation during the period of the highest economic growth in the past century was substantially higher than it is now. Um, So in the post-war era, there were... um, high and arguably too high rates on uh, the very margins, um, but certainly rates that were much higher than they are now. um, And those came down dramatically uh, starting in the 1980s. The promise was that that this would lead to greater prosperity for all. That's pretty much been falsified by experience. The second point that Tom makes that I think is really vital is that the the crushing of the labor movement has had a... a huge um, downward pressure on on wages, um, and then the uh, um, the final point that Tom makes, which is also accurate, is that the racial wealth gap has not changed, and arguably it's actually worse. And that Boston study is one example, and there are many others that show um, a very dramatic um, and persistent uh, wealth gap. My question, though, uh, to some extent, I, I take that as being so clear. I mean, let me just just to reiterate. When you look at the actual tax burden, uh, it turns out that our billionaires pay less taxes and our multimillionaires pay less taxes as a share of their income Mm -hmm. than um, uh, almost anybody except the people at the very bottom who are not really earning much money at all. And if you look at it in terms of wealth, it's even worse. So my question is, why aren't we doing anything about this? I mean, this this is as close to daylight as it gets. But why aren't we changing it? And I think it gets to the other point that we were um, discussing, which is that people um, often identify with the wealthy. They imagine that um, you know um, uh, taxing the wealthy, even in proportion to their wealth or income, would somehow involve taxing them or would be a, a punishment for for hard work and so on. Um, and that's you know they believe that it's not. I don't think it's a justified belief, uh, but we have to ask why they believe that. And I think that's where, that's where I'm, I'm concerned about the role of this 9.9%, because the message that we give as we aspire to join the 9.9%, as we model this behavior of doing of going on this chosen path of going to the good universities and getting a good job, uh, the, the, what we're modeling is the idea that our society does already reward hard work, so therefore taxation is, by definition, just redistribution. It's taking from people who actually made it and giving it to people who don't, don't deserve it, and all of that to me is, is is just transparently wrong. But we need to understand why it's so hard for us um, to see that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
1: that's that's what you know my main point in the book right?
0: Sure, uh, Tom. Again. Thanks very much for the call and and the comments. Uh, I want to go back to the social media here and read a couple comments. Uh, Shtina Lee says inequalities are structural, but we can't dismiss the cultural, i.e., the perceived difference between white and blue collar or a college degree versus skilled trades. Uh, RZS on Twitter says great discussion. Secondary, secondary education needs to be free. I was first in my family to go to college. It changed my life. Everyone needs this opportunity. I want to go now to Joe in Rochester. I'm sorry, uh, to Brian in Dearborn who has uh, a, a similar point. Uh, Brian, what's on your mind?
3: Hey, uh hey. So, you know, I wanted to share just a quick story about a friend of mine that I served with in the Navy. He grew up in uh, Flint, Michigan, and uh, he was in a foster home. uh, He's definitely not someone that people would say is likely to be successful, but he got into IT work in the Navy, and then he uh, went forward, used the benefits the military had to get uh, up to his PhD in cybersecurity, as well as a number of certifications, and now he makes, um, you know, more than anybody else that uh, I was in the Navy with. He, he makes over two hundred thousand a year working for um, government contractors. And last year, after the uh, George Floyd protest, there was a sort of company meeting to discuss inequality. And several of his coworkers, who were also African American, expressed concerns because they weren't making as much money or uh, getting promotions as some of their other colleagues. But he actually pushed back against that because, um, you know, many of them had administrative degrees in a tech firm, and so he kind of argued that part of the problem was that a lot of his coworkers weren't getting the kind of skills or degrees necessary for them to advance. Hmm. And this really made me think a lot about our sort of education economy and the problem we have in the United States with educational systems really don't care whether the degree you get will get you a job or anything. So we really don't forward people, especially people who have the the least amount of cultural heft or or knowledge of what's out there in this, broader economy we don't give them the information they need to make those kinds of decisions even while they're pursuing their education so I think that's a huge part yeah. of this barrier it's an interesting and I think that yeah is an issue that exacerbates racial problems as well
0: yeah uh, Brian that's a really interesting way to think of all of this I'm really glad you called uh, uh, Matthew respond to what to what he's saying about not just education and Uh, skilled uh, trades versus education. I'm not sure which, which I would put uh, his, which basket I might put his friend in, but this idea that maybe everyone just needs the right skills and things would, things would work out. I think I I hear a lot of people suggesting that.
1: Yeah. I I think Brian's making a couple of really important points. There's one really subtle. Let's see if I can um, express it. Uh, He's pointing out that sometimes it's our cultural knowledge that serves as a kind of barrier, and the people who have access to this knowledge know what to do, and then the people who don't uh, end up suffering. Um, And the fact that it's a soft cultural barrier makes it kind of easy to hide, makes it seem as though, uh, well, these people are just, you know, less alert or less intelligent or less, you know, deserving in some sense, but when in fact that's not the case, when in fact it's simply that there is a a knowledge gap or a culture gap that we know is there um, and that we are using in order to uh, reproduce a certain division. And then there's a second point that Brian's making that um, I think is so important. You know, for the past uh, 20 or 30 years, we've adopted a, a new Uh, concept of education, and especially higher education, and we kind of have come to take for granted this, the way it's always worked, and any change is going to involve, you know, massive intervention from government or some sort of socialism or something like that. Well, here's the reality. We had a reasonably universal system of higher education um, in the United States in the middle years of the 20th century. It was, I say, reasonably or partially universal because there were huge race gaps and because and higher education was was a much smaller slice of things, but in fact in the in the story Brian told, you actually can see a certain part of it the G i bill was a huge part of um, this new public form of higher education, which was dominated by large public universities um, and in that essentially society recognized that educating a bunch of returning gis and essentially educating a whole bunch of uh, people with uh, useful degrees is something that's worth investing in as a society. Mm-hmm. And so higher education was uh, not completely free, but fairly fairly close to it or close enough so that the risks weren't huge. We've now basically shifted to this private model, right, where, yeah, we still have public universities, but the students pay most of the tuition at this point. Uh, people go massively into debt. We've had this incredible explosion in student debt as people take on all of this risk. And at the very same time, We've allowed these cultural gaps to persist. So what's the consequence of that? The consequence is that you line up you know, the, the bottom 90% or a significant number of people uh, who will uh, borrow money and make the wrong decisions, owing to lack of information, uh, and uh, will essentially keep wages very low um, at, the, at the middle and bottom of the labor pool, and then you get a few winners. Who generally come from families of winners because they know where the you know how to you know get your way into the right places and do the right things, um, and they collect um, they collect the winnings, uh, and it sounds like it's it's um, that it's zero sum, but it's not. It's actually negative sum because the net effect of all that is to create a very cheap labor pool for the top zero point one percent to um, to make use of. So we've had a major change in our concept of education. We had something that was much more. Um, uh, Driven by an understanding of of the the common good to society of investing in education before, and we've migrated towards a very unstable system. Uh, And this is this is one of the secondary but crucial consequences of rising inequality. Yeah.
0: Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation. With Matthew Stewart about his new book, The 9.9%, the new aristocracy that is entrenching inequality and warping our culture. will continue as well with your calls and your social media comments. Melissa in Metro Detroit, Joe in Rochester, we will get to you next. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter the comments there. We will get to more of those social media comments as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Matthew Stewart. He's a philosopher and a historian, and he's got a new book, "The 9.9%: The New Aristocracy That Is Entrenching Inequality and Warping Our Culture." We're talking about the massive gaps in uh, wealth that we see in America today, and what causes them. What preserves them and what we ought to be doing to make it easier for people who are at the bottom of the economic scale to move up, move up to the middle, maybe move up to the top. Uh, And we're also talking about whether those at the top, those not just at the very top, the 1% that we talk about all the time, but a much broader swath of Americans maybe need to change the way they think of our system in order to make that possible. Uh, As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there and we'll work you uh, into the conversation as best we can that way. Uh, Let's go to Melissa in Metro Detroit. Melissa, welcome to the show.
1: Uh, hi, Stephen, uh, and uh, hello to your guests. Thanks for writing your book. Um, so I wanted to uh, just say that years ago, uh, people, they raced to become multimillionaires, um, but today it, it seems they're racing to become trillionaires. And I think we're all afflicted with this, um, with this need to want more, 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 way, way, way past what we need to live Comfortably, hmm. and so you know, my question is: Why do we believe, as human beings, I'm talking about all of us, why do we have this belief that we're not enough, that we need um, more that never ends?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, Melissa, and I think it's a question that that lots of people are starting to struggle a little more with. Uh, I think. Uh, the, the pandemic and the disruption of the economy and the disruption of work that it has brought to us is is kind of a reflection of people asking that question a little more frequently and a little more seriously how much do i need and how much am i willing to sacrifice to get more um that, that i think it's a fundamental question in in our in our society and it it gets to also, of course, the roots of, of capitalism, which is our economic system. Whether you th- think that's a good thing or a bad thing, it's a true thing. Uh, and why, I guess, we all believe that more is always better and more is always necessary. Matthew, I wonder what, what your response is.
1: Yeah, uh, Melissa, that's a, a great question. and In fact, it's so hard to answer that I'm just going to add another question to it at first to try to deepen it a little bit. I mean, consider this. It's not just, why do we want so much stuff? But you could also ask, why do we work so hard? Mm -hmm. So um, our economy is, by some measures, more productive than any economy has ever been. I mean, we have more stuff around than people had uh, 50 years ago, um, for sure. And, you know, you go back to that time, and people were saying, "Well, by the time we have more stuff, we'll all, you know, be able to relax and stop working so hard." And yet, it turns out that we're actually working harder, if anything, than we were uh, at that earlier time. So our hours have not gone down; they've actually gone up. So why? What, what's driving this um, this craze for for work, especially when you consider that the, you know, the other evidence shows that it's not like it's totally volunteer work. I mean. You know, work is is stressful. People do enjoy their jobs at, at some level, but excessive work is quite clearly bad for people. Um, and yet, we seem to be a nation of of workaholics. So that doesn't answer your question; just adds another uh, layer to it. Why do we want so much stuff, and why do we work so hard? Sure. You know, I think that it does come back to um, a system that we we we've, we've bought into. I'm I'm kind of reluctant to call it capitalism. Um, but that's a kind of – I'm going to set that aside because it's a pretty complicated theoretical question. I'm not really sure that this thing called capitalism exists, but what I think is clear is that there is a system of sorts in place and it involves um, certain ideas about work and about wage labor work. It involves certain ideas about how you define what, a, what an investment is, what counts as capital, and what, what doesn't count as capital, um, even though it may actually be an investment of some sort um, in the public good. Um, but there is a system, and it, and I think that you know those people who have said, and many people have pointed out in the past half century of trying to analyze this problem, those people who have said that there's something in the system that seems to want to um, promote desires and promote kind of this insatiability, um, and that that's part of what's driving us. Um, so I, we have to figure out how to, how to get out of that, that trap. I mean, because we, we do have overall probably more stuff than we need, we should still continue to develop because there are many potentially useful technologies for people that we want to keep developing. Um, but you know we we all know that it's a the overall trajectory is kind of unsustainable. so uh, it's also bad for us individually. so we have to figure out a way out of this um, this kind of spiral of um, you know increasing demand and uh, you know, ever increasing uh, commitment to make our slaves, ourselves in, into the kind of uh, servants of the system.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I wonder if you can talk just a little more about capitalism and the role it plays in this. I mean, I think it, it's hard to discuss this issue without acknowledging that there is a—it's not just an economic truth, but a cultural truth in this country that has existed since the beginning, That that— rewards the idea of economic freedom, of, uh, of economic expansion, both personal and institutional, that it is tied to a, a capitalist mentality that, that I think there's not an easy way to divorce from the dynamics that we see, especially right now where, where we have such inequality between the bottom and the top. I I think and I think it's a more complicated question than okay should we have a capitalist system or should we have a socialist system for instance I mean there 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 is this I think false dichotomy that that gets presented that that makes it difficult to have an intelligent conversation about it sometimes but it, but I'd love to have you talk just a little about capitalism and and the role it's playing in all of this and whether it, that's worth considering as an area for change, uh, just as much as these other things that you're talking about.
1: Yeah, well, I I appreciate your bravery in going into these um, conceptual uh, uh, thickets. So let's give give it a stab. Uh, So here's one thing that um, is concerning for me when we talk about things like capitalism. Um, It's often identified not with a system or a way of doing things, but rather with a set of virtues. And to some degree, you were, are suggesting as much just now. You're saying, well, we so capitalism is some, somehow uh, in some way identified with freedom. and It's in some way identified with individual responsibility. Um, to which I would say, well, if you're for freedom, you're for individual responsibility, in general, I'm going to be with you. I like those things. I think everybody likes those things. I'm going to ask that you also consider cooperation and equal respect, uh, equal rights, and so on, but I think you'll probably, you know, if you're talking at the level of virtue, most people will agree with that. The problem is when you try to identify those virtues with a particular system, and that you're in a position, basically, of either, if you look at the facts, recognizing that we haven't in fact had a capitalist system according to those, that, that sense, that is, we don't actually, haven't realized a lot of those virtues. Or that we can change the system in in ways that don't necessarily involve, um, you know, a, a profound uh, revolution in every political and economic structure, but that nonetheless contribute to freedom, and contribute to those virtues. So to make that a little more concrete, um, when you consider the way the economy has worked in the past and has worked now, the idea that it was ever a free market is, is a transparent fraud it 's a fallacy mm-hmm. I mean we like to pretend that um, that all of these industries just came out of the ingenuity of a few um, inventors uh, who were just acting on their own, but in fact, every single one of the important industries we have um, and we can start with the internet and you can go back to pretty much every kind of technology based thing that we have, every single one of them uh, was the product of a combination of a um, uh, a, a, a certain regulatory regime of public subsidies that within which individual actors were able to act and, and make moves and, and, in cases, contribute to goods, and, in other cases, simply establish monopolies. But the idea that it was ever something that answered to these virtues of pure freedom and individual responsibility turns out to be false. And that's, that's important to understand if you want to fix the this, this mm-hmm, situation, because mm-hmm. what you need to fix isn't freedom. You, you, we all want that freedom. What you need to fix is a system that doesn't actually provide freedom, that, that in fact, locks people into place, that, in fact, privileges those who have certain kinds of property, um, that gives um, monopolies and oligopolies unfair advantages, that that gives too much power to corporations. What we're basically trying to fix are all these unfreedoms that are baked into the system that is sold to us under the label of freedom. So um, this is why it's a very complicated kind of debate, and I'm sort of... This is why I'm also tempted to just not use the term capitalism, because I think that you know, it, it, we want to hold on to a lot of those virtues. We want to hold on to the idea of deferred gratification through investment. It's just that the system we've created rewards certain kinds of private investment, that privileges certain categories of property, and completely devalues um, public investments, mm-hmm. completely underestimates, ignores the contribution that we all make to making a good society gives us no reward, but in fact, you know, allows a few individuals who have claims of certain kinds of property to claim those. And that's what generates inequality, and that creates uh, adverse political dynamics where people try to hold on to what they've basically acquired at at, at some level illegitimately, um, and, uh, you know, sets us um, us all at odds. And we have to figure this out before... uh, before we burn down the planet. So that's my lecture for for, for the morning at this point. No, that
0: was, I I thought that was perfect. That was a perfect summation of uh, the problem we have and, uh, and the, the, the challenge we have facing, uh, facing that problem. Uh, Again, Melissa, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Uh, Let's go to Watts in Detroit. Watts, welcome to the, to the show. Thank you. Thanks
2: so much. Great discussion, guys. Um, yeah, the horrible trade policies. I was involved in a, working in a factory, and uh, they'd come by negotiation time and say, do as we want, or else we're going to move down south, non-union, or overseas, especially to—because uh, of NAFTA and communist China, I was affected. We we're So many of us were— uh, Greatly adversely affected, and uh, whatever happened to uh, common sense and national security? It's horrible.
0: Hmm. Uh, Watts, I'm glad you called and and brought that subject up. We have not talked about trade and and trade policy and its effect on this this wealth gap. And and of course, here in Southeast Michigan, uh, I think we are uh, we are in a position where we have a front row seat to the effect of trade policies on on our economy, Matthew. What what role does trade policy play, uh, play in the wealth gap, and should we be thinking of trade maybe differently than we than we are, if what we want to do is bridge that gap?
1: Yeah. It, um, the short answer is absolutely. Trade policy has a, a dramatic impact, and I look at it in terms of um, who has a seat at the table. You know, one of the earlier callers mentioned the um, the relative collapse in the power of the labor movement. Well, this is what happens when um, labor does not have a voice or when its voice is uh, relatively diminished. Things like trade policy get decided in terms of the interests of those who hold a certain kind of wealth, what we kind of falsely call capital. um, And they, of course, have a a very different kind of trade policy in mind, one that that does not uh, have any great concern at all for the um, interests and rights of workers. And I want to actually give you another um, example that uh, ties it a little bit to my book, sorry for the plug. Um, It's interesting to me that our trade policy is pretty fundamentally anti-worker when you're looking at certain kinds of blue-collar occupations. When you look at a lot of the professional occupations, it's a very different story. Uh, why do we have the most expensive doctors in the world? Well, partly because to get uh, certified and practice in the United States, you have to go through a whole system. You have, you're, you're forced to go into a certain kind of educational system. The residencies and so on are all limited, with the effect that foreign doctors and uh, potential immigrant doctors who could, in fact, lower the price are, 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 are kept out, and they're kept out you know, quite clearly in order to keep those, um, the, the income high in that sector, and the same is true. Uh, I would uh, uh, argue for a number of these professions. So it, it, it does come down to who's at the table. Uh, the 9.9 percent, or at least the professional managerial classes, are there, and a lot of the other people are not. Yeah. they've been uh, they've been kind of removed from the seats of power, um, and you know, uh, to be perfectly frank, um, they've removed themselves to some degree. Right. Because, you know, many of the same people are supporting uh, the policies and the politicians that have have brought this about. But um, the fact of the matter is, as long as the power is distributed the way it is, you're going to get the trade policy that we have, which is a significant part of the problem. Yeah.
0: Okay, Matthew Stewart, uh, author of The 9.9%, The New Aristocracy That Is Entrenching Inequality and Warping. Our culture. It was really great to have you here with us for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, Stephen, it was great. I'm glad to hear all the conversation in Detroit.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Big thanks to Detroit Today associate producer Sam Corey for his work putting today's show together. Also, remember it is Election Day, and you can go cast your ballot here in Southeast Michigan, wherever you live until 8 p.m. Make sure that you do that. Make sure you're part of the process and make your choice known. Come back tomorrow and we're going to talk with an MSU economist about inflation and whether or not that's the right way to frame the economic disruption that we're experiencing right now. We'll also talk a little about the election results today. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. Thank you.